Hey folks, Randy Newberg here. Welcome to Loopold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Leupold's Hunt Talk Radio. Hope you're doing well. We're finally catching up on things around here after a little gap. Uh, appreciate all you hang in there with us and uh, accept again my apologies for the gap we had. But uh, lots of cool stuff going on right now. I got a day in between hunts and we got a whole bunch of meat from these hunts we had this year and about once a year i try to have hank shaw on the the podcast because one he's a world-class chef when it comes to wild game whether it's fish fowl meat of any sort and uh he focuses so much on how to prepare from the time it hits the ground or hits the water to the time it gets in your kitchen and so much of that is overlooked. Uh, I'm always fascinated by some of the ideas and thoughts Hank has on that. Plus, he's always got new recipes that he's publishing that I think are really, really cool. And now he has done a course for a platform that we're a part of uh, that I've done while well, my Rifle Elk course has been published out there. And I just wrapped up a pronghorn course that's going to get published, I think, next spring. Uh, and it's Outdoor Class, outdoorclass.com. And another big thing besides releasing Hank's course is now the University of Elk Hunting from Corey Jacobson. In addition to Corey's elk calling and, and archery hunting class that's been on outdoor class, now the entire University of Elk Hunting has been rolled up into outdoor class. So you no longer need a subscription to the University of Elk Hunting. Let's go to outdoorclass.com. Sign up using promo code Randy. They'll give you 20% off. And you get all these classes from me, from Corey, from Remy Warren, from Hank Shaw, Jamie Teagan, soon to be John Barclow. There, there's a whole bunch of them that are coming. Uh, and you get the University of Elk Hunting on top of all that. So that's who my guest is today is Hank. You've heard him on the podcast before. He and I are, are great friends. I have the highest respect for Hank and, and what he's accomplished uh, in all of his writing and teaching about the cooking of wild meats. So uh, once I get through this quick read of, of who makes this podcast possible, Hank's on the other line, and uh, we're going to have a fun conversation about how I can make sure all this meat we've been lucky to harvest this year Yes, you do harvest it. You shoot the animal and you kill it, but you harvest the meat. So uh, we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff. But first, I want to thank Leupold. Uh, they make this pos podcast possible. They are the title sponsor of pretty much everything we do. Uh, maker of fine American-made optics in Beaverton, Oregon. Uh, go check them out. If it's got a gold ring on it, you know it was made in Beaverton. So go to Leupold.com check out all their stuff or find them at your fine retailers 
They are a family-held business in Oregon, just like their friends down the road in Bend, Oregon, Nosler Ammunition. Another family-held business, John Nosler invented the partition bullet in 1948, 74 years ago, and still going strong. And uh, Nosler, you can go to nosler.com, get on their notification list for when stuff is in stock, or go to your retailer and look for it there. Mystery Ranch Packs, um, based here in Bozeman, Montana. Uh, I've been using those for a long time, hauling a lot of stuff on them this year. And uh, if you want to save 10% on your Mystery Ranch Pack, go to the Go Hunt Gear Shop. And here's how you do it. Go there, put this pack in your cart, along with most any other non-sale item. And when you check out, use promo code Randy, and they'll give you 10% off that stuff in your cart. So that's how you do it. Mystery Ranch Packs, go to gohunt.com, click on the button that says shop, and check out with promo code Randy. If you want to have the best information at your fingertips for everything related to hunting, in addition to the great gear shop, you need to go to gohunt.com and sign up for Insider. Insider has draw odds, strategy articles, and now it has best-in-class maps, real 3D, all these e-scouting tools that we've been using and doing videos about. Go to gohunt.com, sign up for the Insider, and use promo code Randy, and they're going to give you $50 of credit in their gear shop. Yeah, like mad money to use in their gear shop. And then we've got our... Uh, our own platform, Fresh Tracks Plus. Uh, we're adding new stuff from hunts this year. They go on Fresh Tracks Plus before they go anywhere else. So if you're so inclined to go do that, uh, go to freshtracks.tv and sign up. We do have a free option there. Uh, you don't get all of the features, obviously, because it's a free option. Uh, those of you who sign up for the monthly or the annual subscription, you get everything. You get it early. And if there's anything that is exclusive, you are the ones who are going to get it. So anyhow, appreciate you all being here. Hope that you'll uh, you'll tune in, stay tuned in uh, when we get Hank on the line because Every year he's got new ideas and new problems that are being solved as it relates to cooking and preparation of wild food that you intend to cook. So appreciate all of you. Thanks so much for all your support. And I appreciate Hank for being here. Here we go. Hank Shaw, how the heck you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I mean, it's uh, it's hunting season, uh, and although I'm laid up for a little bit with a bum knee, I, I got some good hunts in, and I should be back in time to uh, catch the late duck seasons. You 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 would it, they'd have to amputate both your legs and maybe your arms for you to miss duck season. It's it's religion here in Northern California. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's it's by far the best hunting that we have, bar none. You know. Uh, so you're laid up with a bum knee. What happened there? He, Holly get mad at you and put you in the figure <laughs> four leg lock or something? No. I mean, although that is, uh, it is entirely possible. She's a black belt in Taekwondo. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> but no, I ended it running uh, about a year ago, a year and a half actually. And we tried to manage it through physical therapy and those little shots you get, uh, cortisol, mm -hmm. Uh, and it worked great until I decided that I wanted to finish the uh, Grand Slam of Grouse in Alaska with a willow ptarmigan hunt at 
severe altitude, which pretty much did me in. You should know better than that. Yeah, but you know, it's birds, right? Like, so we have a mutual friend. We have a mutual friend, uh, Shannon Waters of Gastronome. Yep. And and so she's a big game hunter. And so every time I was like, yeah, man, it was this awesome hunt. She's like, yeah, but it's birds. Mm. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's birds. Birds are way more cool than big game. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you need to make her a convert. I, you know, a little step by step. <laughs> so... I guess with a bum knee, how did you navigate Alaska for willow ptarmigan with some of those elevations? Uh, vitamin I helped. Um, uh-huh. you know, lots of ibuprofen. I, uh, yeah, and you know, it's just it's it. The fact that I was a distance runner for much of my youth, you know, from my yeah. teen years up until my mid to late thirties, even, mm-hmm. um, like pain is my friend, and I'm just not terribly worried by pain very much so mm-hmm. people are like doesn't it hurt I'm like yes yes it does like but you're still doing it yes yes i am like i've used to run marathons you know, I'm, uh, I'm used to this kind of stuff well that begs the question did you get your ptarmigan hell yeah i got okay. both that i needed uh it's funny because we hunted rock ptarmigan 60 miles south of the arctic circle that's mm-hmm. as far north as i've ever been it was wow. incredibly cool. It was in, hunted with a guy named Tyler Webster, and and it was incredibly cool. I mean, the hunt was super easy because we were walking around like, oh, look, there's some by the road. And we got some right by the road, and then we hiked around in the tundra for three hours and didn't see any. So it's like, <laughs> okay, we, we, took our, we took our chances and got them. But the mm. willow hunt, the willow ptarmigan hunt, was with um, you know the Alaska bird hunter guys. They, that was mm. crazy. It's crazy. It's it is arguably harder than the white tail ptarmigan hunt I did in Colorado, which is at thirteen thousand five hundred feet. Wow. Hmm. Well, that's uh, that that's adventure, though. I mean, it was. You 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 can't say that that's boring. You know, some people are like, oh, it's just birds. Now, when you go to Alaska and you get to do that, that's like just the trip itself is worth the the experience. I know. And then, you know, there's added grizzly factor. Um, a plenty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no me gusta la, los ojos marrones. I do not like the brown bears. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you translated that for me. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things you and I got a chance to connect this summer, you were in Montana. You were uh, up here filming a big segment, a whole bunch of informational content for a platform called Outdoor Class. And uh, that just rolled out, what, last week or the week before? Yeah, a week ago. A week ago. Yeah. It's, it's, it's fresh, fresh off the presses, as it were. Yeah. And uh, the hard part is you really can't, it's not like you have a fresh elk or a fresh deer or something that you can take care of in July. So you guys did it with a great big beast right with a bison we did it's actually was it wasn't a great big um you know it was a bison from north bridger bison which is just they they run bison near where we were filming near livingston we were in the paradise valley is where we were filming uh-huh. and uh it was crazy because it wasn't a very big bison but it's still a bison right so yeah <laughs> it's still a bison it's like, it's a big ass <laughs> big ass cow thing um <laughs> And it was very cool because I'd never really had a chance to butcher a bison before. I mean, everything's built the same, more or less. But mm-hmm. but 
it was very interesting. Just like some things were very were bigger than I thought. Some things were smaller than I thought. So you know this because you've shot bison. Um, yeah. Their their forelegs are very very thin. Like an elk's forelegs are much thicker than a bison's forelegs. Um, yeah. It's it's that was that was kind of an eye opener. Um, and their hind legs are incredibly thick and stocky. Yeah. So yeah, like the the nuances of the, of the size differences were really interesting. But I was really excited because bison, as you know, are bovids, not cervids, right? So yep. so all the fat on that animal was like grass fed beef fat. So it was delicious. Yeah, is that why it has kind of that yellowish color? That's exactly it? why. There's beta carotene in all the grass that it eats, and so the beta carotene translates into that yellow fat in in anything that eats a lot of it. Okay, because the, the two that I I've, I've <laughs> taken were they were just really yellowish colored. I'm like, I wonder mm-hmm. what the hell causes that. Well, now grass I know. Fed, grass fed diet. Huh. So uh, the the thing that I, and I've told you this many times, Hank, I, whether it's your books or whether it's, you know, the messages you post out on your Facebook page and stuff like that, you put so much emphasis on taking care of this meat. And I don't care if it's fish, if it's birds, if it's whatever, from the time that it hits the ground to the time you bring it to the kitchen to prep it, you spend more time focusing on that than any cooking, writer, chef, uh, grill master, any of them. You spend more time on that and emphasize that more than anybody. Is that, uh, and I'm trying to figure out, well, why is that? Is it just as some people think everyone already knows it or they, they don't know it themselves. So they're like, well, I'm not going to get into this stuff. It's not my special. It could be either of that, but I think, um, I think there are, so, so there's a whole set of people who have preconceived notions and they know what they know and they, they grew up hunting. So you do it this way. And, and so it becomes internalized. Um, and it's, it's, it's very much like, Uh, A great example is when I wrote my recipe for how to cook a duck breast. Mm -hmm. I've cooked 10,000 duck breasts. So (laughs) somebody basically had to stand next to me and be like, why did you just do that? Well, well, how did you know to do that then? And and it's everything is so internalized that you assume that everybody else knows these really sometimes infinitesimal cues of what to do when. And the same thing can be true with with butchering and, and cleaning an animal like in the field. If you grew up hunting and you hunt all the time, there's a set of things that you just do. So I don't come from that. I didn't start hunting until I was an adult. And and the biggest difference between me and kind of everybody else is I'm a chef who hunts, not a hunter who cooks. So so I come at it from a food standpoint first, and I also came into hunting late. So I always would ask questions like, well, why do we do this? Or or why don't we do this is more of the cases. Typically mm-hmm. Like the number one thing I find is like, well, why aren't we getting this meat as cold as possible, as fast as possible? Which is what you do in the domestic food chain. Um, mm-hmm. And you just kind of don't. <laughs> Nothing yeah. in fishing. And, and <laughs> things rapidly change if you do. Like a great example in the big game world is antelope. Uh, and yeah. a great example in, the, in everything else is fish. Like right. ice is your friend until it's not. 
you know, and then, you know, the, the caveat to that is that the, everybody who's fishing on an ice shack, oh yeah, I caught these great huge walleyes or crappies and I'm going to throw them out on the ice to keep them cold. Like, no, (laughs) (laughs) you want your fish cold, but not frozen like a block. Like cold, Mm. good, frozen, not good until you want it frozen because then you have to thaw it to fillet it and then you have to freeze it again. And then, and that freeze thaw cycle Every time you do a freeze-thaw cycle of any kind of protein, meat or fish, it loses yeah. moisture because the right. cell walls rupture as it freezes. And, and you know, why is my duck breast dry or my fish mealy? I mean, that's why. Yeah. Well, and uh, you do it enough times and pretty soon it's like mashed potatoes that you've reheated four times or it's kind of mushy and doesn't have a lot of texture or anything you really want to put in your mouth so oh yeah it's very true with certain certain species of fish are like that yeah so i'm i'm just sitting here looking at your one book pheasant quail cottontail because it was right here handy on my bookshelf and you have spent let's see 16 you've spent 35 pages of a 330 some page book all on preparation and history of the animal and its physiology and its all the other things right into how to take care of it, how to properly clean it, how to pluck it or not pluck it, uh, how to store it. That's that that's over ten percent of your book, and and it's the same with your duck duck goose and buck buck moose and so. And just sign and supper. Yeah. And so I'm fascinated by the fact that you do that. And those are the first parts of your books that if I'm going to reread something, it's like, what the hell did I do wrong there? I go, I go pull out Hank's book, read it. I'm like, oh, yeah. But, yeah why why but, did I hang, why did I hang some pheasants that had a little bit of gut shot? That was I stupid, mean, Randy. Or why did you hang pheasants that might've had a little bit of duck shot at 58 degrees? You know, if you oh, yeah. if you put them in the fridge, they're probably going to be fine. Right. Um, but yeah, so uh, it's all a roadmap. It's just a roadmap to success. You mm-hmm. know, the if you know all of this basic, like the you know, I call it the knowledge in capital letters. If you have the knowledge, the recipes are nice, and and really, I focus mostly on techniques of of ways to cook X, Y, or Z. And yeah, of course, there's specific recipes, but the specific recipes are emblematic of the overall technique. So what I'm really trying to do is, is help you, the hunter, or the angler, or both, get more out of what you bring home structurally. Like, I, if you happen to like a whole cuisine, like here's a good example. I don't know anything about Filipino cuisine, mm-hmm. but let's say that that was your that was your jam, right? Yeah. It, it doesn't matter that there's no Filipino recipes in in my books. What matters is getting you to a position where you know what to do with your own recipes successfully with the wild proteins that you're getting in the field. And and things like, you know, yeah, you can't really deal with pheasant drumsticks without dealing with attendance, like because they will never break down. Same thing with a wild turkey. And there's two ways to deal with it. You can either cook and shred. Or you can, and this is just, I don't care who you are, this doesn't work every single time. You can do that trick where you slightly cut the foot and then you spin the foot around. Mm -hmm. And then you 
hold on for dear life on one hand on the foot and one hand on the drumstick and you yank the tendons out of the drumstick. Yeah. That works about 80% of the time. I was going to say <laughs> it works a hundred <laughs> works a hundred percent of the time, about half the time. <laughs> right. Exactly. So that's why I don't necessarily, I, I, I like the trick. It's cool. And it's great when it works, but, um, I've only been able to get it once in a while on wild turkeys. Cause those tendons are unbelievably, t- you pretty much have to be like a, 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 a linebacker to be able to do that with a wild turkey. And I'm not a big guy, man. I can't do it with wild turkeys. I can do it with pheasants, but. Uh, so you've written all these books. You do all this teaching. You, you have people come to classes and seminars. How different was it to try do this knowledge transfer or whatever you want to call it through a video instructional recorded video class? Was it hard? I, I, it was hard and it was, it was easy and hard at the same time. So the, the easy part was that I knew what I wanted to do and I knew, so the, the outdoor class gives you about 13 units uh, in any given course that you do and you have to pick, well, okay, there has to be some things that are foundational and then there has to be some things that are fun because mm. uh, if everything is foundational, if you're a really experienced wild game cook, you can be like, yeah, I know that, I know that, I know that, I know that. So I needed to have some mm. uh, units in there where even experienced people were like, oh, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. And so those are kind of like the little gold coins in the overall course. But the the gist of the course is for uh, just a regular, you know, normal hunter who shoots a deer or two a year or whatever. And, and you know, you haven't worked through 150 deer in, you know, from a cook's perspective. And mm-hmm. so... You know, I kind of knew I had a roadmap and the process of it was fascinating because, you know, you're on TV all the time, Randy, and I'm just not. Right. And <laughs> and so, you know, if you're listening out there, TV is not a linear enterprise. No. It, it's like, <laughs> the, it's not one thing happens and another thing, then another, another thing, then another thing. It's usually like something happens and then we fit it in somewhere where it fits. And... <laughs> That was extremely true with the filming of this course because there were certain things that we could do before we got the bison. So if you watch the the show, there's actually a sequence of where we were going into the field and we're butchering the bison and we slaughter the bison and we, you know, well, you can't really work with an animal that you shot for at least 48 hours. It has to get through rigor mortis, otherwise you pretty much ruined it. So like on day one, day two and day three and day four of shooting, we had all like, basically it was a potlatch. Everybody brought as much venison as we could possibly find to do other units of the course while the, the bison was hanging. And then the bison, you know, what's in the beginning of the course, the butchery, we actually shot that at the end because it wasn't ready to butcher until towards the end of the the week of shooting. And, And so it was just crazy. Like everything is, is in different orders. And then, you know, there's things that like, okay, it's going to take longer. Right. So this is a, it's a four minute, ultimately it's a four minute video or it's an eight minute video. Some of those things took like two days to shoot because, yep. you know, it's not necessarily two days of full shooting, but I mean, uh, if you watch the, the stocks and broths, well, man, I mean, to really make a really good broth or a stock, you want the bones and the meat to kind of steep overnight. And yeah. it it makes a quantum difference 
in the quality of your finished broth or stock than if you just simmer it for a couple hours. And so I was, I demanded that. So I'm like, no, well, no, this is, we're going to do this the correct way. We're not going to mess around. And so we structured the course so that, okay, here's all the bones and everything. And we're going to put that in and then we're going to let it go overnight. And then we're going to come back the next day and shoot the next part. Well, <clears throat> welcome to my world, Hank. Right? <laughs> I did think of you often. Like, oh, that's what I feel like, right? Uh, no, there's, it, it is just a different platform. But anytime you're doing video, and I think our audience see, we try to tell stories which are hunt type stories. You try to tell them sequentially or linearly, but if they knew how much of it was brought in from, oh, he did that interview or he did that comment before the hunt started. Yeah, we sit down, we go through all of our talking points, and I sit in front of the camera and I explore every potential talking point I think this hunt could go down. And a lot of those get inserted throughout, you know, maybe on day four. And then at the end, I'm trying to wrap up with, okay, what didn't I touch on? What were the highlights? What What about this? It's yeah, it's uh, it's far different. And then you do instructional content, like I've done a course out there on rifle elk hunting uh, for outdoor class. And same thing as you, you know, they're like, well, uh, this and this and this. I'm like, well, wait a second, we got to go back to this. And uh, it it forces the production team to put more time into it. But for me, the end product and the usefulness to the viewer is way, way higher. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had, you know, I have been, I've been approached by TV almost on an annual basis for almost 15 years. Mm -hmm. And nothing has ever really come out of it for a couple of reasons. One, either the the idea of the show was ridiculous or B, I'm just apparently too boring. Uh, there, there were, I mean, there was definitely some some ideas like, yeah, that'd be great. And like, oh, didn't go anywhere, alas. Huh. So, I mean, that's fine. I have a, I have a face for radio. Uh, <laughs> now, now, don't be downplaying yourself, Hank. I've seen some of the stuff, and it's excellent. It is, uh, it's, and I, I get to watch a lot of this stuff, right? And whether it's you know on TV or online, whatever, I. I'm always trying to learn to improve my skills of taking care of the meat and preparing it. Uh, and your course is as good as, I mean, it, it just is so thorough. It's very concise. And it, it answered the questions that were in my head as I was watching it. I'm about ready to say, I wonder why he's doing that. And boom, you say, this is why you do that. It's like, huh. So, I Anyone do have who, to say that, that, that yes, because I mean, finally, finally outdoor class came around, um, because you know, you, I mean, you've seen the course it's, it's, there's a lot going on in the course. Uh, it's funny that the, the team though was more than up to it because the team comes from either the, from serious outdoor television or Hollywood. Like they're yeah. people with like with legit, like movies buying their, <laughs> under their belt. So <laughs> You know the, which is also really good because the the main editor for the course is she's not a hunter, so she would ask all these questions, which are really great questions to ask because, again, it's going back to like the you know 
you've done something so many times it's internalized. Well, if the whole team is are all outdoor people, there's going to be things in this course that we just all gloss over because we all assume somebody's going to know it. And and that's why you need people like Ariel, my editor, who like, I have no idea why this is true. Why would you say this? And I'm like, oh, okay. You say it's because of that. And, and it makes the course better. Yeah, it, it does. And uh, if people want to sign up, go to outdoorclass.com and use promo code. Is it promo code Hank? There's two. So there's promo code Shaw, my last name, S-H-A-W, and that gets you the discount. That's a 20% discount. But the book, um, the the video course is a a companion to the book Buck Buck Moose. So there are some people who don't have Buck Buck Moose. And so if you use the code Hank, then that gets you a book. So gotcha. you can either use my last name for the money discount or my first name for the, uh, and then we'll send you the book. Cool. Well, folks, if you haven't done it, I, and I'm not saying this because I have a course out there, put my course off to the side and maybe get around to it someday when you're really bored and got insomnia, <laughs> it'll solve it. But if you're serious about food and how to make your table fair infinitely better Go out there to outdoorclass.com and sign up. And you're going to get Hank's course. You're going to get my course. I've got another one they're wrapping up on pronghorn hunting. Corey Jacobson, Remy Warren, Jamie Teagan. John yeah, that Barclay. is the coolest thing about this, though. It's like, it's like, it's, you know, you, you know, it's, you got to pay like a hundred bucks, but then you get the discount. So it's less than that. Um, yep. But it's not just my course. It's not just your course. It's all of them. And so it's, it's a lot like uh, lynda.com or, or the the masterclass programs where you like you 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 pay to subscribe and then you have access to all of this information. So it's 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 not a case where they're going to nickel and dime you. Yeah. Well, the goal is, from what I've been told or shown of the roadmap, that they're going to add multiple courses every year. Uh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I've seen what they got on the list. It's some pretty intriguing stuff. I'm not sure why I'm on the list, but. I guess maybe so. so they, they rent office, short. They, they rent office space from me, Hank. So they felt like, wow, we better at least include the guy so he doesn't get I don't hard know, feelings. Man. Yeah, I, you know, if somebody thinks, "Hey, I want to shoot a big game animal on public land," I can't imagine who they would think of or before they would think of you. Like, mm. that's your deal, oh. man. Uh, it is. You're not gonna. You're not it like is. one of the. I mean. You're you're the quintessential public land, especially Western hunter. Whereas you know, you know, maybe your strategies are not going to work for like South Carolina, but they sure as hell work for the Great Plains and the and the Rocky Mountain states. Yeah, well, we've we have been so lucky this year, and I say lucky because anytime you have success beyond your wildest dreams, I'm old enough to know that it's not all skill. There's some good luck involved, but for sure. Uh, Timing. This year we we've uh, we've been out and uh, let's see we've filled six elk tags, three pronghorn tags, and a bison tag. Man, and uh, yeah, That's some serious red meatage. <laughs> yeah, if you come to the Fresh Tracks headquarters, there's no shortage of protein in our freezers here. So if if you don't get your knee fixed, we might have to send you some. Oh, I think I'm going to, um, I've got an opportunity to hunt whitetails in Oklahoma. And if that fails, then I've, I always have an invite down on the Mexican border to hunt Nilgai. Yeah. So 
when I when you were here, you invited me over for dinner, and you made that. Tell me what that is. It's it's an African animal that's in Texas, right? Well, Indian. Um, so a nil guy oh. is a bovid, like a bison or like a oryx, um, mm-hmm. and they look weird. They look like cave paintings. Um, big giant body, teeny little head, like the body mm-hmm. of a big bull. Little big yeah. gray ones is like it's damn near the size of an of an elk. It's mm-hmm. not as big, but it's close. And but their heads are no no bigger than a decent sized whitetail. Super weird. Um, mm-hmm. So they're you know because they're a bovid, they're they're kind of a warm weather bovid, so they're not really very fatty. They're very lean, uh, but mm-hmm. the meat is amazing. And some chucklehead decided that. You know, as you know, I mean, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, fish and game departments were a little different in the sense that <laughs> they would be like, hey, I bet this creature, the pink junkadoo from the Amazon would do really good here. Let's bring a whole bunch of them and see what happens. And <laughs> and so uh, they did this all over the United States, which is why you have oryx running around in New Mexico and you have nilgai running around in South Texas and pheasants running around in the Midwest. Um <laughs> I mean, so the, all of these are not native, and and some of them have just done perfectly well. And the the Nilgai is the example in the south of Texas, where it's this kind of a semi tropical, big giant deer thing that's been running around for a hundred years. Wow. Well, I I don't know why I thought they were from Africa, but I know this: when they're on the plate in front of you, you're really happy to have them. Oh yeah, oh yeah. They're they are coveted down there. I can see why. I forget which dish did I make you? Uh it was you, you gave us a choice of options. Uh was it tacos? The, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so it was probably tacos de lengua and then barbacoa. Barbacoa, yeah. Yeah. I I've been getting a lot of mileage out of your barbacoa recipe. It's so good. It's uh, it's especially if you smoke it first and then braise it. It's it's so good. Really? We didn't smoke it, but we uh, we cooked up six beaver in April mm-hmm. back home in back home in Minnesota, and it, it goes without saying that in Kuchiching County, North Central, right on the Canadian border of Minnesota, uh, you're not going to get a huge amount of diversity in what gets served there. So oh, come on, we, there's there's all kinds of like there's you could you can choose between Finnish food and Swedish food and German food and Norwegian food. <laughs> all of which causes everybody to fall asleep or or decide they're not hungry. But uh so when I said no we're gonna make barbacoa, uh, uh some people looked at me like what is that? Is it is it some sort of strange pasta or something? And uh, so, no, we did uh, six beaver, and most of it was in your barbacoa, and it got a hundred percent unanimous thumbs up. And nice. here's the other part: in little bit, little town of Big Falls, Minnesota, when you're having a wild game feast, you pretty much know that a lot of people are going to show up. <laughs> so. Uh, free food, man, I'm going to be there. Uh, so I can't tell you how many different things I've used that on. And uh, it's excellent. So I'll use yeah, it again. Yeah, I mean, the, the other fun parlor trick you can do, especially since we travel around a lot, mm-hmm. is because people are like, well, there's no way I could make barbacoa because I'm in Kuchiching County or wherever. Uh, uh-huh. 
the ingredients for it are A, pretty simple, but there are a couple of Latin ingredients. But all you have to do is remember the Google phrase, Latin market near me. And you'll be shocked at how many little Mexican markets or Salvadoran markets or whatever are in out-of-the-way places. Really? Like, my favorite example is um, I'm in rural Manitoba, and we're and I wanted to make some Mexican food. <laughs> okay, that's even further out of my expectations than Cuchiching County, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough, there was like five Latin markets in Winnipeg, and wow. so and Winnipeg was like forty minutes away. I'm like, yeah, I can do that, and huh. it's like, it's not hard. It's not hard. I guarantee you. There is a Latin market within, I guarantee you, within an hour of your of where you are, and probably within twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow! Well, I mean, there's of course, a, if you're listening to this in Arizona, it's, it's every five minutes. So, right. There's a new one just outside of Bozeman here, west of town at Four Corners. Uh, El Mercadito, right? Uh, I can't pronounce it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's but, it. <laughs> yeah. So I saw it pop up. I'm like. Cool. Made me think of Hank. <laughs> uh, so, uh, what else you been up to besides reco- when did you have your knee fixed? Was it uh, just a few a days minute? ago? Just a few oh, days. Really? It's still stitches are in. It's still swollen. It's it's uh, yeah. It's, I'm gonna be out for. I probably will be out for a couple months uh, mm-hmm. of real real hunting. Like I could probably yeah. do like box blinds for deer or, or, you know, a fancy duck hunt or something like that. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, the, the, the kind of refuge hunting where you walk two miles of waders to get to your, your yep. spot and then you chase all your own birds. That's a couple months away is hmm. even though this well, was you, minor surgery, it's still surgery. You're, you're not over medicated today where you're going to say something where Holly is going to say, Hank, why did you say that? Well, I mean, she does that anyway, but it doesn't require. <laughs> she is the world's greatest photographer for she's all of a your great, books, great right? photographer. And and she's also uh arguably one of the greatest duck hunters I know. Um because uh, it's like that's her thing. Like mm-hmm. if it's if the duck season is open, Holly's hunting ducks. And yeah. where I will I'm sort of a bit more of a dilettante, I'll hunt deer and pigs and elk and blah 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 you know you name it if it tastes good i'll hunt it holly is not a hundred percent focused but primarily focused on waterfowl and she's gotten very good at it well she should she for years and years was the lead person there at the california waterfowl association yeah, right? she was their director of communications for cal waterfowl yeah so so what else you got coming up? You got any new books coming up or you just been too Slowly. busy traveling? Slowly, okay. yeah. So so um, my friend uh, Patricio Wise runs a Mexican restaurant down the road from me. And Patricio is from the Mexican state of Nuevo León, which is, uh, if you've been to Laredo or been to Del Rio or Eagle Pass, um, it's the state of Mexico that's on the other side of that border. And we're, the working title for this book is called Del Norte from the north um mm-hmm. and we are focusing exclusively on the cuisine of the states of mexico that are that basically touch the united states oh, so wow. it's not so much a border cookbook because the food changes once you get 30 miles south of the border um but it's a it's a a set of dishes and a cuisine involves quite a lot of fish and game which is really cool mm-hmm. Um, 
and mushrooms actually there it's there's a couple of really really big mushroom hunting areas in that area so it's it, it, it touches all of the bases and it's a it's an area of Mexican food that has not really been well documented in English. Uh-huh. Cool. So that's something that's a joint project you guys are working on. How long does mm-hmm. it take to do one of these 350-page books? This one takes a lot longer because this is not a thing that I've been doing for years and years and years. Um, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. learning Spanish for it. Um, I started studying Spanish in 2019, and I'm reasonably conversant now. I'm not fluent by any means. Um, mm-hmm. But I can get around in Mexico, and it requires a lot of research just from like, uh, you know, standard research, you know, reading in Spanish, getting Spanish cookbooks and Spanish you know, the Mexico is very um, interested in studying its own gastronomy, and so there's a lot of data on that. Talking to lots of people in English and in Spanish, and visiting lots and lots and lots of places, so you you see everything. You know, you may have an idea of what a dish is supposed to taste like, but until you've had it in where it's made, you don't really know. So mm-hmm. it, it it requires an enormous amount of research, which is why it's it it's taking a few years because if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Yeah. So when I think of this part of Mexico, I don't necessarily think of supermarkets. This this is just my, my trip into interior Mexico. It was a long time ago. It was very rural. I think of small farms. I think of people growing and processing their own pork or beef or mm-hmm. mutton. Is that the kind of stuff that will be in a book like that, or is it like? Yeah, no, I mean, it's we're trying to hit the essentials. So there's a lot of really amazing food coming out of the cities, you know, like Hermosillo and Tijuana and Monterrey and uh, places like that, um, where there's world class, you know, five star Michelin, blah blah blah. But we're trying to hit the the dishes that are the basis of that cuisine. So what that also means is that so that you can make it, (laughs) you know, like it's a a lot of the dishes are very, very simple in terms of what ingredients they use. Um, So, and there, unlike my previous books, not only will there be um, dishes with venison and doves and duck and, and, and lots of fish and that kind of thing, but there will be beef, pork and chicken because Mm -hmm. it just, it's, it's the first time I'm actually going to do that. Now, the irony of it is many of the dishes that uh, I will test out will mm-hmm. be done with wild game. And so every single dish that's in there, with a couple exceptions, because there's a few cases where you, you just need a chicken um, or you just need something that does not exist in the wild world, that mm. there's going to be a wild equivalent for probably 98% of the recipes in, that are going to appear in this because that's just how I cook naturally. Yeah. Huh. So uh, you said something that causes me to think uh, you you wouldn't accept a rough grouse as a substitute for a chicken. It depends. Yeah, about 90% of the time I would, but there are, okay. but there are certain cases where the chickeniness, like the fat and the skin of oh, like okay. a stewing hen, like mm-hmm. chicken noodle soup tastes different from grouse noodle soup. Yeah. And and sometimes that that matters. Not always, yep. but in some cases, okay. like, but if you're making like a taquito, you know, where you have the shredded breast meat and you roll mm-hmm. it in a tortilla and fry it and then serve it with salsa, this is just a simple taquito. Hell, you can use anything for that. 
<laughs> Quail, grouse, <laughs> chicken. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, that's like uh, grouse taquito would be amazing. You know. Ah, uh, well, I I'm heading back to Minnesota for deer hunting in two weeks, mm-hmm. and it's a banner of all banner years for rough grouse. I've so heard. I, I don't know if I'm even going to carry a rifle. I might just carry a <laughs> shot, shotgun. I have not are you been. Gonna wel- the- are you going to welcome them to Ground Pound Town? Absolutely. <laughs> that, that, no other way. I, if you think I'm ever going to change my ways, Hank, of shooting grouse on a stump, out of a tree, on the ground, please don't wait around for that day. Oh, I, I, I say the same thing about mountain grouse and uh, and and uh, mountain quail. So if you're if you're if you and I are hunting and you demand that you shoot your mountain quail on the wing, I will shoot three or four before you even get a shot off. Oh yeah, I'm I'm the same way. I I see, and I get you know guys got dogs. They've put a lot of time and effort into, it and it's it's fun to watch the dogs work, but. If you want to see me get a little bit wild and wired up, just put a <laughs> covey of rough grouse in front of me. Uh, I don't I don't care if a world record elk is bugling 30 yards away. He can keep bugling because I got some grouse I got to take care of here. And, so uh, I got a great thing for you to make when you're up in, uh, in the North Country. Yeah. So I just posted it on the website just a couple of weeks ago. It is so you know what a pasty is, right? Like a Cornish mm-hmm. pasty. Oh yeah, that's a northern UP of Michigan thing. It is. It's a weird that's there's another hybrid that exists up there. So so the the UP pasty is not really a Cornish pasty and it's not really this other thing as well. It's a, it's a it's a hybrid, but so because it's a combination of Finns and Cornishmen who did all the mining up in the UP. So yeah. that that meat pie kind of it's neither fish nor fowl, but the the or the other origin besides the Cornish pasty is this Finnish meat pie called Liha Piraka. Uh, and I just posted a recipe for the Finnish meat pies on on Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. Oh, they man. are amazing. They're amazing. So it's a bread crust. So it's like a yeasted bread. You know, they're shaped like half moons like a pasty anyway, but yeah. but it's like uh-huh. with the the dough is like yeasted bread, and inside is our meat, onions, and cooked short grain rice. And it's got to mm. be short grain. So you just go to like you go to the supermarket and you buy um, risotto rice, like arborio, or buy Japanese rice or something like that. The mm. reason why it has to be short grain is because it's that way it's good cold. Long oh, okay. grain rice is chalky and disgusting if you eat it cold. Short grain mm-hmm. rice still tastes good if it's cold. Okay. And so these things, and then you you make them and then you fry them. Mm-hmm. And they're so good. They're so good, and they're they're every bit as good cold while you're hunting in your pocket, and really? as they are <laughs> hot off the oven. And so, like it's yeah. it's like go Finland. You know, there's a it's uh-huh. an unbelievably good meat pie for you to try. Oh man, I I will have to do that. Being of my Finn heritage, I right, I better do it. <laughs> I got to go get me ground swat a few grouse or partridge as they call them there. Yeah, and uh, oh man, I'm gonna be downloading that one. I'll be it's there. It's so good. Oh. It's all it is is like onions and diced up meat, and then the rice, and then you fill it. Ah, oh, so good. Well, the hard part is finding anything other than wild rice up in that part of the world. So you could use wild um, rice because I've had wild rice cold, and mm-hmm. I, and it tastes pretty good. 
Yeah, I love wild rice gold. My wife makes this wild rice that has got sautéed mushrooms and all kinds of baby onions. It's like I could eat that by the bucket load, warm, cold, hot, doesn't matter. So I've eaten more than my share of cold wild rice. So maybe that'll yeah, be Yeah, use that then. They make it even more local. Yeah. So that's uh, that's what I'll be doing. I'm I'm heading to Wyoming to help my son with the mule deer hunt. And when I say mule deer, everybody kind of furls their brow and looks at me like, "You eat those things?" That's so uh, weird. I just don't understand. Yeah. I, I know it's like, yeah. And I bet you, if I served you one, you wouldn't even know it. You yeah, wouldn't know just, any different. It's so weird. It's just it's a, it's this bizarre hang up. Because it's not like, you know, it's not like you're eating gobs of mule deer fat because right. deer fat is waxy and has a tendency to give you a terrible mouthfeel. You know, people say it tastes bad and it doesn't usually, it doesn't usually taste bad. It usually tastes fine. But as soon as it cools down, it coats your mouth the way chocolate does, except it's gross. And, <laughs> gross, gross. <laughs> oh, it's gross. It's, it's, it's and so like the, the cor- correct thing to say is it has a terrible mouthfeel because it's you're like nah, yeah, yeah, this is waxy grossness, um, <laughs> which you equate to like bad flavor. But if it's piping hot and crispy, it actually the flavor is quite good. Um, yeah. But it's not like you use tons of it, and I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's because mule deer actually work for a living. And it's rare to find a good-sized mule deer buck that has been living off of, you know, somebody's alfalfa field, the right. way white tails yeah, do. Right. No, we we won't be finding that. These deer summer in the high country around Jackson and then migrate 150 miles out to the Red Desert out by Rock Spring. So those yeah, <laughs> so these mule deer work for a living. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I just I still I've I've eaten a lot of mule deer and a lot of whitetails and, and I I'm not so sure. I, I mean, I don't I mean I'll tell you that the Nil guy was better. Um you know, but it's just different. I haven't yeah. had, I haven't met a, I really, I actually haven't met a big game animal I hated. The closest would be a mountain goat. Yeah. Um, which could be a little bit more challenging because they're stinky. They're tough. I, I got. Toughness, rem- you can defeat toughness. It's the stinkiness that's, that's, can be challenging. Yeah. Well, uh, Shannon at Gastronome did make, uh, out of my mountain goat, we had it tooth aged at 13 and a half years. She took Oof. the neck roast, yeah, took the neck roast and made tamales out of it. Oh, that'll do. Yeah, it was really good. I was blown away. She said, You know, I thought I could soften this up in about four to six hours. It took more like 12. <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should mention that. You know, speaking of Montana meats, um, that bison. Yeah. So I brought back a, a beautiful bison brisket because we didn't end up using it for filming. So I ended up bringing it home and cooking it. And you can cook a bison brisket exactly like a beef brisket. And it's going to taste every bit as good, if not better, except, <laughs> oh my God, it required a solid four hours longer than brisket. And and I, I don't know if you've ever cooked a beef brisket. Beef brisket as it is, is an eight hour plus proposition. Yeah. This was more like 12 to 16 hours 
of super wow. slow cooking. Because, you know, like if you want to do brisket right, it's got to have that jiggle when you're done, right? So yep. you, yeah. you kind of jiggle it and you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> and then you're done. And <laughs> it took forever for that bison brisket to get that way. But once it did, it was amazing. Hmm. So, that, I mean, that's wow. really the, the, the great truth of, of most wild game cooking is when you're dealing with a tougher cut, you know, shank, neck, shoulder, brisket, ribs, whatever. The, 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 the only thing it is going to ask of you that is different from supermarket meat is time. And it will typically okay. require longer. And mm-hmm. that's it. There's not a lot of difference in technique. So the only technique changes that you have to do when you're cooking wild game versus supermarket meats is they are they are related to the fact that it can take a lot longer for the meat to come off the bone. It's like right now, as we speak, I'm making a a kind of a, a stew called sancocho, which is um, it's got lots of peppers in it and sweet potatoes and uh, other kinds of things, and it's usually done with chicken. Well, if you do it the way they make it with the chicken, you just throw everything in the pot at the same time and it's fine. Well, yeah. you can't do that. I'm using pheasant legs and grouse legs, mm-hmm. so. These are going to go in with just a few seasonings for a couple hours before everything goes in because the time it requires for those to get soft and come off the bone means they kind of have to cook by themselves for a little while before everything else goes in. Otherwise, everything is going to be hammered and mushy. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be drinking it instead of eating it. Yeah. You know, it'd be like, I mean, sometimes some stews like that are are awesome, like a burgoo, like a Kentucky burgoo or a Brunswick stew, or you Mm -hmm. want everything to kind of meld together and get hammered. Um, But that, I mean, you have to, (laughs) it's better, like, if that's what you want, then go for it. But if, if it's bad when you don't want that, and that's what happens. Yeah. Well, I did an antelope roast with uh, one of your recipes when I got back from Nevada. I had had an, a pronghorn, and that was beyond excellent. I I ate it in two days. I was home alone. My wife was in Oregon with her mom, and I'm like, ah, I'll bring some of that to work. That's too much for me. Well, then I got to eating it, and I'm like, Hell with those guys at work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm eating this tomorrow. <laughs> How did you cook it? Uh, uh, the old lazy way, right? Crock pot. Uh, okay. Um, oh, so it was like a pot roast. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it just, I just put it on low, I think, for eight, over eight hours. And, there you go. Uh, man, it was just. And then here at our farmer's market, we uh, you can get some pretty darn good produce at times that you don't have to get at a supermarket. And you put all that together, throw a few things in there that you recommended, and it's like, ooh, man. I, well, I given that you're from like northern Minnesota, I'm sure you use a lot of rutabagas and kale. Uh, I did not do either of those. I am. I hate. I've eaten so many rutabaga. I can't. Uh, just the thought of it is like, no, not again, please. Uh, I like rutabagas. <laughs> it's, it's okay, but it's. I don't know. I think By you just way, have childhood trauma. You, that may be the case because that's why I will not eat mayonnaise anymore. It's, I had childhood trauma from Brussels sprouts. Oh, Horrifically, really? horrific, and pea soup. Yeah. <laughs> just pea soup that was so salty like the dead sea scrolls are buried in it it's just terrible uh, well you know people would say oh that 
that front blade roast or whatever you'd want to call it off a pronghorn, that's going to be pretty tough. <laughs> it was the whole front shoulder pretty much. It broke down. It was, oh man. Yeah, I can no, guarantee nothing you. Nothing is, nothing, time defeats everything. I mean, yeah. mountains become sand and beaches. Like, there's no way that anything is not going to be tender if you give it enough time. Well, it's like yeah. what 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 Shannon was talking about with the tamales. Yeah, I mean, sure, it took 12 hours, but but yeah, there's. I don't care what it is. Like the 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 toughest thing I've ever cooked was a. We don't actually even know how old the rooster was. So chicken, but it was a chicken rooster that had to be at least five years old, and it was like six feet tall and. It was the biggest, giantest, meanest, burliest chicken I've ever seen. And even that got tender after eight hours. Yeah. Like it just it's just time, man. Yeah. Well, you hear all these stories about pronghorn. And I can uh, I I can't imagine anybody who would have eaten that who would not have said, Oh my gosh, I have to go pronghorn hunting next year. That's just the immediate response was Oh my gosh, I wish this thing weighed 400 pounds because <laughs> I could eat the whole thing this winter. Well, that's why you get you get the the buck tag and then the Dauphin tags. Like, I don't know if it's it's changed, I think, a little bit, but the last time I went yeah. antelope hunting, like you have to, uh, depending on where you go, you usually have to apply mm-hmm. and try to get drawn for a buck tag, but usually the Dauphin tags are over the counter. Yeah, and uh, you know... The cradle of pronghorn in North America being Wyoming, they have had sure. two years of terrible drought, which were immediately after two tough winters. So right now, their studies or their their surveys showed this summer they estimated their pronghorn population between, I think, 360 and 380,000 compared to the almost 700,000 they had. Oh, you know, so they're 15, way down. 50, yeah, so... But they still taste good if you can get a tag. I have four points in Wyoming. So really? you and I keep threatening to uh, to go pronghorn hunting in some fancy spot in Wyoming. And I've just yeah. been adding points every year waiting for you to call me. But you, you seem well, I'm not I, – like I said, I've got a face for radio. So you like – <laughs> Well, I've got four <laughs> points also, Hank. So maybe we should do that next year. Yeah. Go to like a right. super fancy place and like actually shoot a big one. Uh, uh, whatever big the only the great part about it being big is hopefully it weighs 10 pounds more when you get 10 pounds more <laughs> yeah, meat totally. off it but so what what other of all the things you encounter in your your work there in the kitchen where are the other uh, i'll call them myths about inedible meats i mean we we touched on pronghorn I don't know anything about how to cook a sage grouse well. I've tried it a couple of times, but I, I, I'm a complete failure when it comes to sage grouse. And before I write it off to sage grouse just being bad, the default response or, or blame goes to me. Where, where are the other animals out there? So a sage hen, are... so there's sage hens and there's sage hens. So there's, an, is it, there's a quantum difference between a big boomer and yes, and a young a of the year, or, or a young of the year, a quantum difference. So, the young of the year sage grouse, their meat is no darker than a Hungarian partridge. Yep. It's it's kind of middle red. It's sort of imagine like a chicken thigh, and mm-hmm. 
they're amazing. I mean, there's just there's nothing right. short of amazing. Now, of course, you have to like sage because that's what they eat. Uh, if you don't like that, don't hunt them. I mean, it's like, yep. oh, the sage grouse, who sage you? Well, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who'd thunk it? <laughs> that's, that's 98% of their diet. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, wow. So they're, but the, but the big boomers can be several years old. And that's one of those things where like, oh, okay. So this is going to be A, tough and B, particularly sagey. It's, it's like really old spruce grouse are very, very, very sprucey. Uh, mm-hmm. especially in the middle of winter. Yep. So you just have to go with what God gives you, right? So with a big boomer like that, okay, it's going to be sagey, it's going to be tough. Make green chili stew. Make that classic desert Southwest dish mm. that because green chilies and sage flavor are made for each other. And so you, like, don't try to make it, like, I just, I just literally posted a recipe for chicken fried pheasant. Yeah. which is specifically for young-of-the-year roosters. Huh. If you were to do that with a sage-grouse, it would be disgusting. <laughs> That's my problem, I would bet. I, and yeah, don't try my, to fit a square peg in a round hole. Yeah, and here's my other problem, Hank. A three sage-grouse get up, and which one captures my attention? This great big monster that is hardly able to get up. I'm like, That's one I can hit. Boom. And I walk over there, I'm like, oh, no, not another one of these. Well, then you just right. make a green chili stew, that's all. I'm, that's that's a good point. I, and fat. I, fat tames a lot of that sharp edge, too. So my mm-hmm. green chili stew starts with a lot of bacon. And so oh, wow. that, that pork fat, smoky pork fat, goes really, really well with sage. Huh. Like, really well. Well, there you go, Randy. By the way, you have to train yourself not to do that. Like, so if you get swan tags, <laughs> uh, so when I get a swan tag, I'm absolutely waiting for the one that isn't white because okay. they're like snow geese. So before they're they're fully mature, they're kind of brownish mm-hmm. yep. bits on them, and I'm I'm shooting the juvenile, hundred percent, all day long. Okay. And mm. everybody else is like, look, that one has a band on. I'm like, who cares? I'm shooting the small one because I want to eat it. It's still gigantic, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. you can make a kielbasa out of it. You can make a double, a, a folded out kielbasa out of the next, the next sausage. Really? Which I've done. It's, it's kind oh. of, it's kind of rad. Huh? Well, I, next time, uh, a group of sage grouse get up in front of me. I'll try to show the discipline to wait for the young ones, which usually follow after the old one takes off. All of a sudden, the young of the year will start taking off. But by then, I'm like, oh, I got one. I don't need a bunch more. And it's usually the the great big old buzzer. Yeah. So. I'm trying to think what else has like got a relative reputation for being tough, um, like not good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, the humble coot. Yeah, you know, the humble coot. Like I said, it's a butt of many jokes. Um, and I will tell you from bitter experience: do not pluck them and roast them like they are a mallard. Um, despite the right. fact that they are often very fat and look like they should be delicious, uh-huh. all that fat—they're basically flying muskrats. They, <laughs> they are. They smell the same. Okay. 
<laughs> That's it's a good this, way to put it. I've yeah, eaten muskrat multiple pondy times. pondy kind of algae. Swampy. Uh, swampy. <laughs> like it's not fishy, but it's just like it's not good. And it's all yeah. the fat. So, But the skin, I mean, the, the strike on coots is that their breast meat is very small. Um, mm-hmm. But the skinned out breast meat is perfectly fine. I could serve you skinned out coot meat all day long and six times on Sunday. And you'd be like, this is amazing. Because there's nothing wrong with it. The mm-hmm. legs are a bit challenging because the legs have the the double whammy of the same tendons that a pheasant has and intramuscular fat that is pondy. So the mm-hmm. legs are a bit. I I usually I usually basically take breasts and the giblets because the Cajuns are onto something. They they shoot coots primarily for the gizzards because the gizzards are like three times the size of what it should be for a bird that size. And really? yeah, and it takes like eight seconds to clean a gizzard. And, <laughs> you know, so you have this giant, huge crock pot full of gizzards and gumbo and it's, oh my God, is that good? Like, cause once you're clean, all a gizzard is, is meat. It's just really dense meat. I mean, you've been to a bar in Montana, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Gizzards. But yeah. I mean, hearts, livers, here. gizzards, breasts off of cute coots, nothing wrong with them. Nothing at all. Mm-hmm. My favorite is to line a whole bunch of them up and shoot them all at once. <laughs> <laughs> my record uh, is nine <laughs> really i yeah. uh i shot a coot when i was 12 13 whatever and my dad is like all right you shot it cook it that cured me i you know i just threw it in the oven thought well i'll figure it out <laughs> i did that too i plucked it and put it in the oven and we're like what is that smell <laughs> yeah I, I never i haven't shot another coot since then let alone nine and one good volley i'm but in the fish world, is there? Uh, I we have paddlefish here, and our crew has paddlefish are good. There's nothing wrong with yeah. paddlefish. Yeah, I was surprised. Everyone told me, "Oh, you, you trust me? You aren't going to want to eat that." I find it's rich, but yeah. it's very good. It's like sturgeon. Yeah. What? Where does it get its bad rap? Because they're weird looking. Are, Same okay. thing with burbot. You know, like, okay, I'm guilty as charged. (laughs) I, uh, I was called. Do you you scream like a girl when a burbot wraps itself around your forearm? No, I don't. I just cut the line. Get out of here. (laughs) There's a reason we call them lawyers in Minnesota. Well, there's a reason you probably can't say in your podcast. Well, uh, there's lots of It's because of the the proximity of their heart to their uh, hind end. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> they're right next to each other <laughs> uh, i know we used to catch a lot of those at lake of the woods and this, I love is, this is purely cultural my grandpa would cut the line my dad had cut the line and they'd just kick them back in the hole when we'd be ice fishing get the hell i will eat an eel pout over a walleye any day no yeah see if if you said that at my family they'd throw you out and they'd lock the door behind you I'd be like get the hell out of here Right? A lot of people would. I know. And and that is the freaking Cree Indians did up in Manitoba. We were we were dropping deep dropping for um for uh lake trout. Uh And and so I was stoked to catch some burbot because I mean they live in the same spot. They're way down on the bottom. And like, yes, burbot. Because they're big ones too, like, you know, eight, ten pounders. And uh and so I'm like, I'm making these for shore lunch, and they're like, No, you're not. And like hell yeah I am and I they made me do a segregated shore lunch <laughs> like my own frying pan my own stuff like they did they did pike 
over for everybody else. And I did the burbot and I, uh-huh. they admitted it was good. So they're like, yeah. it's cultural. I don't, I don't understand why the, it's probably because they just look icky. Yeah. And that's why no, I, I've eaten it and it's excellent, but there is a cultural thing about laying or burbot or lawyers or pout, eel, eel, eel pout, pout or, Mariah. Yeah. Whatever you <laughs> want to call them. There's a cultural Lane. thing about them. Yeah. Where people are like, just get that thing out of here. I don't want to see that thing. I mean, I got an uncle who is deathly afraid of snakes. And when you pull one of those through the hole, he is screaming and yelling and kicking at that thing. It's like, hey, it's a fish. Get it out of here. Jesus, <laughs> get it out of here. <laughs> it just, and so I, I would bet most of these myths, if they got explored, are probably cultural, made up, manufactured, or just people never thought about it or did anything other than the old square peg round hole idea that I did. Yeah, there's that. And I did it. I did a great, so I have, I run a podcast called the hunt gather talk podcast Yep. and each season has is thematic. And then the new, the new season is actually opening up very soon and that's going to be all about preservation. So hmm. salting and pickling and fermenting and, and, yep. and freezing and all, all kinds of dry aging, all that kind of stuff. So that, but the previous season was just finished was all about fish and seafood. And we did an entire episode about fish prejudice. And <laughs> it's it's universal, dude. Like everybody has an irrational hatred or dislike or disgust reaction to a fish that some other group, often nearby, thinks is the most amazing thing there is. Yeah, like freshwater fresh drum and sheep's head. That's a great example. It's a great example. They're really good. Only, uh, only in the Midwest do they dislike fresh. Do, do they like dislike the drum? Yeah. Everywhere else that the drum lives, it's considered the highest possible <laughs> fish. <laughs> like we have the California white sea bass here, which is absolutely, arguably the most coveted fish in California. You have all of the drum that live in the Gulf of Mexico. You've got all the drum that live all the way up to Delaware, and. Everybody loves them. And then and in freshwater drum, they love all the way up to about Missouri. And then once you get past Missouri, they're like, man, it's disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I will so, say this. You do need to ice them because they get mushy. Yeah. Well, the other part, I, I'm sure there's a way to do it, but cooking a lake trout that weighs over about 10 or 12 pounds. Smoke it. It's some, well, it was yeah, some of the that, best smoked meat you've ever that, had. That oh, that's the only way we ever did it. But every once Don't in a while, you get this fit wild a square hair. peg into a round hole. Bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, well, they're so damn oily, and they have yeah. such a strong taste that if you try to fry that thing or cook oh. it in one of the traditional methods that you'd cook a white uh, type of white, meat, yeah, not good. Oh my gosh, you, you you're like that tastes like rotten clam juice or something. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the only it's, way it's, only way I've ever known to properly salvage a, a lake trout was to smoke it. Smoke it. Yep. And it's yeah. just don't try to make it do something it's not. It's like yeah. that sage grouse. Like don't mm-hmm. chicken fry a boomer. You know, yeah. don't don't fry a big old a big old lake trout like it's a walleye. Yeah. Wow. I think I've eaten just about every freshwater fish there is. And yeah, I'm partial to walleyes. And they poach, are good. But, they're but, they're legitimately really good. I would say... Am, am I the only weirdo who thinks bluegills are off the charts good? 
No, not at all. There's a there, there's a huge segment of the population for which uh, a nine nine ounce and above bluegill is the greatest fish in the freshwater. Yeah, I, because I you would can fillet be, it. Yeah, like there 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 are spots in Lake Sacagawea, North Dakota, where you can routinely catch twelve to twelve ounce to one pound bluegills. What? I'm yep. only like four hundred miles from that joint. Tyler, Talk to Webster. Tyler Webster. I know he's told me I need to come over there and do that, and I, I don't. Maybe it's because that's you're what gonna I smile so much your head's gonna split. I know. <laughs> I I go back home to Minnesota and I get so fired up about catching bluegills and people are like, "Well, you know, the walleyes are biting at Lake of the Woods." I'm happy as a clam right here. Like, get out of my way. Get get the grease ready. We're we're doing bluegills because they fight better. <laughs> Like, well, walleyes don't fight. Can you imagine trying to reel in a four-pound bluegill as hard as they fight? Mm-hmm, absolutely. It, it, it's called a it, triple tail, and it lives in the uh, in the Gulf of Mexico, and they will grow up to twenty some odd pounds. But if you look up triple tail, it's essentially a gigantic bluegill. It's built the exact same way, really? and you kind of fish them the same way. You you float bobbers past structure with live shrimp. And they hit it, and then it's game on, man. It is really, it is the greatest thing. If you've never done this, you need to do this before you die. I've, like it I've is never done it. Triple, triple tail. tail. Look, I'm, yeah, I'm doing a Google search right now. Triple, yeah, tail. catch triple tail in, in Mobile Bay. Look at that. Whoa, they can grow up to 18 kilograms or about 40 pounds. Ooh. Yeah, that's huge. But I've uh, I I've caught many over 15, and it's not impo- you know, like the guys I know who are really good at it. Their PRs are in the high twenties. Really, they, they got them in Texas too, huh? They do, but they're better. I think Mobile Bay is probably the best place to fish for them. Okay. Hmm. Wow. Sounds like I got to go do something here. I I don't know. I just I talk to people. They think that bluegill, panfish, are like, yeah, nah. That's, that, that, I don't know. Maybe just because they're a pain, you know, the smaller ones got a lot of cleaning and scaling and cutting fins and stuff. True, true. And also it's, it's what you grow up with. So there's an element of, I'm over that now. You know, I've, I started with panfish as a, as a toddler and now I catch, you know, bigger uh, things. I, you give me a worm, a bobber and a plain hook and <laughs> I can be entertained and fed for days on end. I, I'll I never... actually prefer crappies to bluegills, but... I, I love crappies, but I could be sold on those nine ounce to one pound bluegills. I mean, that's that's a whole uh, different animal. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I just you know, every time you and I talk, you bring up some other uh, mystery uh, meat, you know, whether it's a fish or a bird or whatever, of how you cooked it, and I'm like, I thought those were supposed to be terrible. I thought those were bad, and you, you and I get in these discussions, and it just fascinates me how many things probably are excellent that culturally I've been indoctrinated to a bias against them. It's, and, it's just true among with, with foods all over the world. I mean, it, even, even it extends into mushroom hunting. There is, are whole sets of wild mushrooms that are amazing to eat. They're just not good fried in butter. So they're like, oh, these are terrible. Like, oh, they're actually really good. You just, they're not good fried in butter. And like, oh, if you can't fry it in butter, it's no good. <sighs> okay, where do I start? <laughs> well, that'd be my grandma. 
I mean, I like mushrooms fried in butter too, but I mean, it's just, if, again, you know, a great example, it's called the uh, uh, Lactarius deliciosus, the saffron milk cap. It's a very common mushroom in the fall. It's bright orange. It's beautiful mushroom. It, and it, it salts and pickles really, really well. And it's fantastic to eat while watching the Vikings actually win a game and <laughs> while drinking some beer or some grain belt or Akavit or whatever. And it's like, that's a great, it's a great kind of thing to just munch on, like put it on some freaking left side, have at it. But it's like that particular mushroom is terrible fried in butter. Huh? Well, then don't fry it in butter. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, you do a lot of, I'll call it saltwater fishing. Uh, What are those myths in the world of uh, saltwater fish? I think the biggest uh, one are the, are the, what I call the gray fish. So these are the fish that are usually pelagic. So they swim in the middle or the top of the water column and they're mm -hmm. constantly moving. So, You've heard, if you've heard of like fast twitch and slow twitch muscles, uh, they're all slow twitch. So you're talking mackerel, you're talking bluefish, you're talking wahoo, you're talking tuna, you're talking skipjack, mm. and um, the, all of the jacks, like amberjack and, and jack terrell mm -hmm. and stuff like that. So those fish have a lot of myths around them, and it, most of them are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh really? And it's just be, it be, yeah, but it's like the lake trout in the sense that they they are amazing prepared in a certain set of ways, and they're just not good battered and fried. They're just not. So don't. Huh. Well, you know, they're also very energetic fish. So these are fish that really, really, really um, benefit from being bled and iced on the boat. Like huh. a bluefish, if you if you knock a bluefish on the head, pop the gills, bleed it out gut it and put it on ice on the boat, it is an entirely different fish than, a, than, than if you just throw it on ice. And God mm. forbid, if you don't even put it on ice, you might as well <laughs> eat you know, wallpaper paste. <laughs> Are you saying that from eating wallpaper paste? <laughs> no, I'm saying that from eating bluefish that was not chilled because the, the meat's soft because it, bluefish, if you never met them are imagine like big, Blue, they're actually kind of cool looking. Under they have an underslung jaw like a piranha fish, and they're, uh -huh. they they travel in wolf packs in the Atlantic, and they're just like rah, 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 and they eat everything, and they fight like hell, and then they're like, I hate the world. Oh, I'm dead, and then they die. So it's like <laughs> they're crazy fish. They're super fun to catch, um, but they they're really spastic kind of like angry fish, and so you have to treat them like because they, they're on hot. Um, you know, like, like antelope, antelope run hot, you know, mm -hmm. you shoot an right. antelope and antelope is like, oh, I'm dead. And then it, then it dies. And where a deer is going to run a little way, even if you have a perfect shot, the yeah. bluefish are like that. So you have to like, oh, okay. Just like an antelope, which is his body temperature is hotter than a deer. And you usually hunt him in warmer, in warmer weather. You got to get him out of the skin and definitely get him out of the guts as fast as you can. Same thing is mm -hmm. true with these bluefish and jacks and, and things like that. Like if you, and this is circling back to the, the prep portion of all my books like mm -hmm. it's entirely different if you have a well-treated antelope or or bluefish or um or duck for that matter yeah it's entirely different creature than if it was poorly handled between field and your fridge yeah oh it's and we've all 
either through our own experiences of learning, maybe have made some of those mistakes. And then when we got it right, we're like, whoa, <laughs> this makes a big difference. I, I would bet everybody has a personal experience where they can relate to that in some manner. Oh, or, I, I mean, I'm, we've all done it. You know, yeah. I mean, the, the way I know a lot of this stuff is because like, oh, well, okay, that's terrible. What happened there? <laughs> <laughs> of all the, the waterfowl, including crane, swans, everything, snow goose, the one that's always got the, the stigma about it. But you already it, mentioned coots. Yeah, I would think nothing is more stigmatized than a coot in the waterfowl world. But uh, but snow geese have it for reasons that are entirely related to abundance. So okay. the reason we hate on snow geese is because there's a lot of them, right. and and the the human thinking is like there's no scarcity, so they must be terrible, which doesn't make any <laughs> sense. But but it's like <laughs> but it's like oh, I shot fourteen of them. They can't be good, and it just it doesn't make any sense because there's Yes, they are hard to pluck, but most people are skinning snow geese anyway. Mm-hmm. The meat is 95% of the time, maybe even more than that, is going to be milder in flavor than the meat of a Canada goose. Hmm. Well, that's good to know because, I, I, again, we had blue geese and snow geese in abundance and growing up, and it was like, oh, why'd you shoot that thing? Now we got to eat it. <laughs> but... It sounds like there's. You just shake my head at that, and it's like, wow, you know, cook a snow, a skinless. I'm not even telling you to pluck it. Just cook a skinless snow goose breast, like it's a steak, like medium rare. Yeah, and then come back to me. But that was amazing. Like I'm gonna kill more of these. You're like, of course you are, because you cooked it correctly. All right. Well, that's that's the other part of it. You know, I grew up where you cook something within an inch of its life. And then you Several throw it feet back past on. its life, actually, up there. Yeah, and then you throw it back <laughs> on there just just in case, you right. know. Lay it on there at four fifty for another half hour, and we'll, we'll call it good. It just that's how some cultures are. I, I hate to say it that way, but that's how it was where I grew up. Any red meat, if there was a juice or a, even a liquid, you know, clear juice in it, oh, so that thing, you'll you'll get some disease from that thing. It is weird because they're not really like that in Scandinavia. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, there's not a huge tradition of of rareness. I mean, there's now because that's just how modern people eat. But but it's not like, you know, you look at, I mean, I know a fair bit about Scandinavian food. And, you know, it's not like traditional Scandinavian food is disgusting. Like, <laughs> it really isn't. I mean, it's like traditional Scandinavian food. There's a lot of amazing food dishes there like a lot a lot yeah. a lot it's just a, a great deal of it fell away when it showed up in the upper midwest or was forgotten or you know rationing in the world war you know did, i mean for whatever reason like the all of the things the the nuances that made scandinavian scandinavian food so amazing a lot of them were lost in the dakotas and minnesota and the up yeah. Well, I think there's a book number whatever for you. Yeah. You know, uh, Scandinavian yeah. book? Yeah. We we need to go to to Sweden and hunt birds. 
There's, there's uh, lots of grouse there. I know. I've got invites to do that in Finland and Sweden. I want to shoot one of those big capricalies. The capricalies, yeah. Take me along, uh, man. I will. <laughs> if I go, you're going to get a call, and we're we're going to eat our way across Finland and Sweden. Oh, that'd be amazing. That'd be amazing. Okay. Like, we could have those meat pies. <laughs> there you go. Those uh, meat pies I'm, are really good. Like, they're, they're really good. They're very simple. I'm, and yeah, I, I totally, I'm, I endorse that. Make, make, Go make them and make them with a with a wild cooked wild rice. It's gonna be okay. amazing. I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna bring the recipe with me. Hopefully, I find some rough grouse and I'll let you know how it works out. Yeah, they're not yeah. hard to make. I mean, it's People basically you, it's the it's a it's a softish bat you know softish dough that you throw like a packet of yeast in and let it rise for a bit while you're cutting up the meat and cooking the wild rice and stuff. And mm-hmm. it's not like it's not it's not a complicated recipe. Like, well, that's my you style. Can do this. <laughs> <laughs> Hank has seen me a time or two. He's like, "You can do this, Randy. You can do this." I, it's almost like I need a cheerleader. A, a coach well, and you have that, my cell phone because, like, you'll be in the middle of it. You're like, what do I do now? I'm like, all right, <laughs> keep stirring. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you take my calls anymore, Hank. <laughs> oh, especially if you're making one of my uh, recipes. I don't want you to fail. <laughs> well, so far, every recipe of yours I've ever made that I've shared with some. Somebody, so I'm preparing it. I'm like, oh, if I fail at this and they don't like Hank's stuff, it's my fault. So I feel this intense pressure that I'm going to screw it up on your behalf. And every time people are like, oh my gosh, what is this? This is like, well, here's where it is. Go get the book. And uh, so it's so it's so easy the way you explain it, even an accountant can do it <laughs> i mean I, it, it does in all seriousness it makes me happy to hear that because um when we do books we send all of the recipes out for testing by normal human beings mm-hmm. so i don't let chefs test my recipes i want i want randy newberg to test my recipes because yeah. it's in a book especially what i write has to be the same thing that you read so yep that you can be successful because it's not like you can just run down the street and buy more, you know, elk tongue. Like yeah. <laughs> it's just it's not going to happen. And so if, so if my, if my instructions are bad, then I've ruined something that is sometimes irreplaceable. Yeah. Well, so far, uh, a hundred percent success. So I, uh, I'm sure someday I'll screw it up, Hank. But uh, I know where that accountability lays if it if it happens. So, uh, but anyhow, I uh, I know you got a busy day. I kind of imposed on you today, but I wanted That's to right. to make sure that we let the world know that your outdoor class course has been published. Yep. Outdoorclass.com. Use promo code Hank or promo code Shaw, depending on if you want the discount or you want the book. And uh, also, if you get a chance, make sure you go out to Hank's website and his Facebook uh, page. I don't know why you accepted me when I applied for <laughs> membership at your Facebook page, but uh, I was yeah, like, you're oh, a valuable no, he, contributor. He's, he's no, I, like, I spent a lot of time on Instagram. Um, I, I, Instagram is the last social media that I really, uh, so far, I'm knocking on wood right now, has been largely drama free. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hunt gather cook on Instagram and, um, and you know, the, the core of what I do is always, is always the website, which is hunter angler gardener cook. And you can see damn near 1500 recipes on that website right now. 
And then it also has a link to buy signed copies of all of my books. So I, those are, that's how you can support me directly and not mega corporations who are also selling my books. Uh, and, and plus you got a signed copy. So there's a kind of a bonus there. Well, I hope that they do that, Hank. I, you, you have done, and I don't know how anyone measures something like this, but at least in the circle of people that I associate with, what you have done to make wild protein something more respected, more revered, and more served and shared is probably more than you realize. And uh, I, I, I just love that you continue to do it and you do it with a passion that is so obvious it's like if, if you want to see hank in his element you got to see him in his kitchen no no pretty- actually you know you know what you want to do uh you did that video of me working with that chachalaca in arizona yeah that's a perfect example of that. if you google hank shaw chachalaca on youtube you're gonna find randy's randy's video of me like i'm over the moon about this bird that i've you know, I, I'd never encountered it before. And it was just, I was just, I still am giddy about it. Like that's, it's an amazing bird. Like it was, it was amazing. Like I've never seen some bird so fat, like it's crazy. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just, the, I hope you understand how much one I appreciate you, but I, I think the hunting and fishing world in general, you, you've brought a lot of people down this avenue of food and wild food would have never got there or they would have had bad experiences and they would have turned away from it. So I hope you keep doing it, Hank. I'm trying. I'm trying. Like I haven't, I haven't, you know, it's the, the coolest thing about this is that there's always another recipe to discover. There's always another cuisine to explore. There's always another, you know, thing that like, Oh, I never even heard of that. I'm going to totally do that. And then the process of adapting um, a recipe for supermarket meats or fish uh, to to the wild world is is enormously fun because it's it, it allows people to appreciate not only like American regional stuff but but cuisines of all over the world and then with the stuff that they bring home and it's just it's it's it, it never gets boring. Well, I'm I'm glad you're doing it. I'm glad you enjoy it and. Uh, Next May, let's uh, circle around and see if we can burn our four pronghorn points in Wyoming and quit talking about it. Absolutely. And go do it. So with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let the audience go. I'm going to let you go take care of your knee. <laughs> Always go. a plus. Nah, i gotta got to check on that. Well, thanks for being here, Hank. Appreciate everything, and uh, we'll hopefully get a chance to catch up in person again soon. Are you going to Arizona this year or no? You know, I don't know that I'm going to get uh, a chance to. You know, my mom's been dealing with health issues, and so I, uh-huh. I got to, I got to spend more time with her. So I last last year I <laughs> Duluth, Minnesota, isn't the place you want to spend most of December and January, but that's what I did. And well, it's going to be better this year. The Vikings are good. Well, they've only played six games, Hank. Come on. They're they're gonna invent some ways to muff it. So if they but, uh, do not win the division, you guys just need to kill yourselves. Uh, yeah. They 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 need like, to they need to like go the Packers join. have a losing record. This is your yeah. chance. <laughs> I know. Uh, the Vikings would be a marginal CFL team. Even with Ouch. a ton of because they would figure out how to lose to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers or the Calgary Stampeders. They would invent new ways to lose. 
But that's just how you're raised as a Vikings fan, okay? It's true. I mean, get get all excited, but set your expectations that somewhere along the way, you're going to have the greatest of disappointments. It's very Minnesota. (laughs) You would know that. (laughs) Whereas me, being a New York Giants fan, I'm like, fuck yeah! (laughs) Yeah, well, think about... We're six and one. I know. I, uh, I'm for I'm no scratching. reason. Like there's zero reason we should be six and one. Uh, but you are. I hope that you put a thumping on the Eagles every time you play them. <sighs> that and could be Cowboys. tough. The Eagles are actually really good. They are. They're they're the one. But lost you could you could stuff. see three teams from the NFC East go to the playoffs. I know. Who would have thought that two years ago, huh? No one. Who would have thought thought that last year? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you would have said that last year, even people would have been looking at you like, what planet you from? Are you? you, I was just hoping to win. I was hoping for a 500 year and we can still muff it. Like we we have to go three and seven over the next 10 games to, to have a winning record, but yeah, you'll get there. But yeah. I'll, I'll check in with you in January. How's that? There you we'll, go. We'll, we'll compare records. We'll do a Vikings and Giants thing. <laughs> see, see who's most disappointed. Well, yeah, we'll be like the number one and two seed in the playoffs. <laughs> That's like the sixth oh. sign of the apocalypse. <laughs> well, Hank, thanks so much. Give Holly my best, and we'll catch up soon. I will. Take it easy. When the sun For you